Well, good morning. It's great to be with you all this morning. Uh, like Maria said, my name is Bryce. I'm one of the pastors here and um, excited to look at Psalm 97 with you this morning. This morning or this week, uh, as I was thinking about Psalm 97, uh, it reminded me of an interview that I heard several years ago on NPR where they were interviewing a guy named Roy Choi who uh, was responsible for starting the sort of new wave food truck movement in Los Angeles in like the 2010, 20-teens time frame, or maybe slightly before that. You know, before that, food trucks weren't places where hipsters went for great meals. Uh, food trucks were like how construction workers got through the day. Um, we think of food trucks in a really different way now, don't we? But um, Roy Choi was sort of responsible for starting that new food truck scene in Los Angeles. And he talks about his discovery that he could cook and sell great food out of a food truck as this sort of revolutionary thing for him in his life. And then the interviewer asked him about his signature dish. And he began to describe Korean Kogi short rib barbecue street tacos. And as I'm listening to him describe Korean barbecue short rib street tacos, you know, warm tortillas, sliced um, Korean barbecue short rib, cilantro, onion, lime topped with spicy soy slaw, I'm listening to him describe this on the radio, and, and I'm thinking, I know for certain that that meal is amazing. Just at a theoretical, intellectual level, I could hear him talk about it. And I, could, and I knew that, it would, that if I could eat that, it would be amazing, right? And so for a couple of days or a couple of weeks, that, that just like image just stuck in my head to the point where I'm like, I gotta do something about this. And so I looked up the um, recipe online and I made it. <laughs> and we had some friends over and I made Korean barbecue short rib street tacos. And it was amazing. <laughs> um, I didn't know that a taco could change my life until that moment. <laughs> And the interesting thing and the reason that I remembered that as I was wrestling with Psalm 97 the past couple days is because of that experience of knowing intellectually, knowing theoretically, knowing as a concept that something is amazing. And it was. But it pales in comparison to actually experiencing the reality of that thing. And I think that description, not of short rib street tacos, but of God himself, is what we're reading about in Psalm 97. Psalm, this summer we've been looking at um, book four of the Psalms. There are 150 Psalms, but they're divided into five books. And so we started with Psalm 90 several weeks ago, and we're looking at the, the fourth book of the Psalms. And um, Psalms 93 through 100 keep coming back to this theme that God is king that God is good, that he reigns and that he rules over his creation. And we've looked at different aspects of what it means that God is king. But I think what's happening in Psalm 97 is not so much that he's talking, the, the, the psalmist isn't telling us anything really new about the reign, the kingship of God, so much as the psalmist is describing the reality 
of God as king. And so what I, what I want you to think about, what I want to invite you to think about this morning is, what does it look like for God to go from a concept to a reality in our lives? Because when God is a concept, we may believe a number of things about God, and the things that we believe about God may well be true, but at the end of the day, when God is a concept, what we're left with is really like a set of principles, a set of doctrinal assertions that we are committed to. And again, like principles aren't bad, doctrinal assertions are not bad in and of themselves, and yet they pale in comparison to experience in the reality of God as he is. God is a reality, not just a concept. Psalm 97 is inviting us not just, uh, it's inviting us, and, and the fascinating thing I think about Psalm 97 is it's not just inviting those of us who would call ourselves Christians um, to experience the reality of who God is. Psalm 97 is, is inviting all of humanity to experience the reality that God is king. I mean, look at verse 1. It says right at the beginning, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. The whole earth, the many coastlands, the nations, all of the people of earth, it's an invitation to all people to experience the reality of who God is. And so what I want to do this morning is look with you at three images that this psalm uses that describe the reality of who God is and invite us to experience him as a reality instead of just a concept. So those three images in the psalm are glory and idolatry and covenant. So I want to look at them one at a time. <clears throat> so first, glory. The psalm begins by describing God's glory in verses 2 through 6. It's almost describing a cloud. It's describing something that is almost horrific in its scale, but it's talking about the glory of God's presence. Verses 2 through 6 talks about clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes up before him. Lightning lights up the world. The earth trembles. The mountains melt like wax. The heavens proclaim his righteousness. The peoples see his glory. When the Bible describes what it's like to come into the presence of God, the word that the Bible regularly goes to is the word glory, God's presence. God, when God comes into, um, when God brings his presence to bear on us, the, the Bible routinely uses the word glory to describe that. Glory is a great word. The word glory in the, in the Hebrew means weighty. It means significance. It means that God matters. And you know, I think sometimes we have the tendency as 21st century Westerners to think something along the lines of, you know, if I was to appear in the presence of God, I would have some questions for him. Um, he's got some things he has to answer to. There's a great clip um, from The Onion. Um, the Onion is one of my favorite theological um, sources. The Onion uh, has this like Onion News Network. It's a video, and there's, a, there's like an anchor man sitting at the news desk, and he says, today I'm going to 
um, interview the Lord God Almighty, and he says, Lord, thanks so much for joining. I'm sorry! And his like, skin begins to melt off his face, and I'm like, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Maybe the most accurate thing that Onion has ever put out. Um, because over and over again in the Bible, we see that when somebody experience the, experiences the glory of God's presence, there is simultaneously like a, a, an intrigue factor and a danger factor. Coming into God's presence is both intriguing and it's also dangerous. You know, we can think about Moses in Exodus 3 where God appears to Moses and God appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush. And Moses is drawn in and yet God says, don't come any closer. God appears as fire, and Moses can't get too close because it's dangerous. We can think about Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, where he enters the temple of God in Jerusalem, and he receives this vision of the glory of God, of God's like unveiled beauty. And Isaiah's response is, woe is me, I am undone. He's saying, oh no, oh no, I'm a... I'm a prophet, and, and I'm suddenly aware of the fact that I have unclean lips. To, become, to come into the presence of the glory of God is to experience both intrigue and danger. I remember several years ago when our older two boys were like maybe, I don't know, two and three, like one and a half and two and a half. They were super young. It was the last time I think we successfully camped as a family. Um, <laughs> And we went on this church camping trip. Um, and so like you do on a camping trip at night, we lit a fire and we sat around the fire talking and our younger boys are just so intrigued by the campfire. And they get sticks and they toss sticks into the fire and they wanna play with it and they wanna light everything on fire. And you know, it, it, it's amazing. They're, they're, they're pulled into it and yet occasionally they get too close and they feel the heat and they back off. Or as parents, we have to grab them and say, this is, this is dangerous. And so it is with the glory of God. God's glorious presence is both intriguing and dangerous. And we see here in Psalm 97, the reality of God's presence results in both trembling in verse 4, right? There's the danger, but also rejoicing, beginning and ending the psalm in verses 1 and 12. When the reality of God's presence enters into our lives, we experience both awe and humility. And the New Testament expands even further on God's glory, describing what happens when God moves from a concept to becoming a reality where the Apostle John in John chapter 1 talks about the Word, right? I mean, what's more abstract or conceptual than the Word? And yet he says... The word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Jesus enters our world and he enters our lives as the one who is the very glory of God himself and yet clothed in our humanity to make the glorious God accessible to us without damaging us, without undoing us. God's glory is both intriguing and dangerous, and this passage so, shows us that we cannot encounter the glory of God's presence and remain unchanged. Verse 5, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord. 
before the Lord of all the earth. The mountains come into the presence of God and they, and they melt like wax. Even the mountains melt before God's glory. Now, what did the mountains do to, like, why did God wipe out the mountains? Well, it's poetry, right? Um, the mountains didn't, you know, God's not destroying the mountains. Obviously, this is a, a, it's a poem. And the point isn't that God is literally mounting, melting mountains as much as it is to say that the presence of God's glory will transform anything and anyone that he encounters. And so perhaps the best way to know if we have a God who is just a concept or a God who is a reality is to ask ourselves, have we been transformed by the reality of God? Has God's presence actually changed us? Because what the psalm is describing is encountering someone who is so much greater, so much more awesome in the truest sense of that word, so much more glorious, so much more weighty than we are, that when we encounter him, we are humbled by him. And we know that that happens even in human relationships. You know, if you uh, perform in any way, if you are a musician, if you are an athlete, um, and then you encounter somebody who is truly excellent at their craft, you're humbled by it, aren't you? To encounter even human grace, uh, greatness is humbling. Last week, Brad and I were in Birmingham for our denomination's general assembly, and I was reminded being in Birmingham, um, at a previous point in my life, I was a college pastor, and I was uh, also a full-time fundraiser to support our ministry, and so I spent a lot of time raising money in Birmingham, and um, of all places. <laughs> and... Um, and, and there was a time that I was in Birmingham several years ago, and our ministry at the point was sort of, you know, kind of doing this financially, and I needed to raise a significant amount of money very quickly or we were going to be in real trouble. And I was in Birmingham, and somebody had graciously agreed to, like, host me for the night and gather, like, a dessert and invite some people to come and let me talk to them about our ministry in Salt Lake City. And before that event happened that evening, in the afternoon, I was talking on the phone with my wife, and I was, and frankly, I was scared, and I was angry, and I said, I remember saying to Ashley, I know what's going to happen tonight. I'm going to go, and I'm going to talk to these nice people, and they're going to be so excited, and they're going to give like $1,000, and it's not going to be nearly enough. And then I went to the, the dessert, and uh, somebody who was there who had already told me three times that he wasn't going to support me, wrote a check for like $10,000. And I think, I can't remember exactly what the number was, but I think that one dessert, um, God provided like $25,000. And it was just so humbling. <laughs> you know, I'd gone in frustrated, scared, and angry, and I came out encouraged and humbled. That's what happens even when we encounter human grace and uh, greatness. Have we been transformed by the reality of who God is? I'm going to get really practical for a second here and um, take my life into my own hands and acknowledge something that happened in the news this past week. You're all aware that on Friday morning, the Supreme Court handed down their decision overturning the Roe v. Wade uh, case. And I'm not going to say anything about the decision itself, but 
what has saddened me in the couple days since that decision came out is um, seeing the stridency of people on all sides of that issue. And the way that we are engaging with each other, the degree to which our impulse is to take to social media and call out those that we perceive as being on the other side. Because friends, when God becomes a reality, his presence overshadows our stridency and it humbles us. And that doesn't mean that we can never say anything with conviction or with certainty, but it means that certainty and humility can coexist. Because our certainty is not in ourselves and in our positions, but our certainty is in God himself. The one who is far more weighty, far more significant, far more glorious than we are. And so we cry out to him and we say, God, you are the God of life and justice and the God of care for the marginalized, and we need you. We need you. We have so far to go. We haven't just won or lost. We have so much work to do. Change us, God. We cannot do this on our own. We need you, oh God. When the reality of who God is enters our lives, we cannot remain unchanged. So that's glory. The second image in this psalm is that of idolatry. Verse 7 says, All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their, boasts worth, make their boasts in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Worship him, all you gods. When the reality of who God is enters our lives, we cannot remain unchanged. And that comes as a challenge to us because all of us, by nature, look to something other for God, for our value and our dignity and our worth in this world. And the Bible uses the word idol or idolatry to uh, explain that tendency. And we tend to think of idols as like little statues or little pictures of, I don't know, pagan gods. And there's a sense in which that's how they're described here, but what the Bible is doing is it's saying we have a tendency to conceive of God as something that we have created to look like us something that we have created to do what we want him to do. And so we look to things that we have done or things that we can achieve to bring us comfort and worth and life. And often those idols that we look to are not in and of themselves especially bad things. They're things like our work, things like our kids and our family, things like our reputation or our love for the outdoors. But this psalm says that something, it says something that I think is really curious at the end of verse 7. It says, worship him, all you gods. So it, it acknowledges this reality that we tend to make little gods, small g gods, idols, in our own image because we think that the things that we create that look the way we want them to look will bring us life. And then the psalm turns that around and says, you gods, you small g gods, you idols, worship him. Worship him, all you gods. Worship God, all you gods or idols. Speaking to our idols, the psalmist says, worship the living and true God. You things that we are prone to look for, for security and status, 
have to bow before the living and true God. When the, when the reality of who God is comes into our lives, what this is saying is that it's not simply that we stop loving our work or our families or our hobbies, but rather our loves are completely reordered. 200 years ago, a Scottish pastor named Thomas Chalmers uh, preached a sermon that he titled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And the title, I mean, the sermon itself is great, but the title says it all. I love that. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And what he's getting at here is the reality uh, that when we see the awesome and dangerous glory of God, and when we experience the reality of the glory of God entering our lives in the person of Christ, our hearts are renovated and our new affection for Christ's work in us casts out or reorders our lesser loves. Maybe a good way to get at this is to quote, of all things, Romeo and Juliet. Um, because Romeo and Juliet, the famous love story, one of the things that always strikes me about the play is the reality that at the beginning of the play, Romeo is not in love with Juliet. Uh, Romeo at the beginning of the play is lovesick, but he is in love with someone named Rosalind, who is Juliet's cousin. And it's actually at the party where Romeo is trying to catch a glimpse of Rosalind that he first sees Juliet. And, you know, if you've seen Baz Luhrmann's amazing reproduction of that play, they meet around this fish tank and they exchange these, this kind of words of love, this, uh, is it a sonnet? What is it, babe? <laughs> You're supposed to know, back me up on all literary things at the drop of a hat. They say this, this, this poem about hands touching hands, but it's a euphemism for kissing. And after Romeo sees Juliet, his feelings suddenly change, and he says, Did my heart know love until now? Forswear its sight, for I ne'er saw true beauty till this night. And after the play, his, I don't know, cousins or family or whatever is asking him about, about Rosalind, and he says, Who is Rosalind? I don't even know that name. Because he's seen Juliet and his affection for her has cast out his affection for Rosalind. When God becomes a reality, he re rearranges our priorities, not so much by giving us a list of, of morals to follow and commands to obey, as by showing us the beauty of who he is. And as we are captivated by his beauty, and as we see Jesus coming to us, as we see Jesus coming not to, um, not to so much uh, condemn us, right, but to show us the glory of God. As we see Jesus coming to bring God's glory to us in a way that we can access it without being undone by it. As we see him coming not to condemn, but to give us himself up for us, we are transformed. And our hearts and our affections are reordered. So that's the second image in this psalm. And the third image is the image of covenant. Covenant. Um, there's the reality of who God is. There is uh, you know, his glory, which relativizes our idols. And that leads to a transformation in the way that we actually live. So the psalm finishes with verses 10 through 12. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous, 
and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. The word is not used here, but this is the language of covenant. And I know that um, unless you've bought a house in an HOA recently, you probably haven't used the word covenant in a long time. Um, but the word covenant is, a, is the word that the Bible regularly uses to describe the way that God relates to his people. And the central idea of covenant is God coming and saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. God initiates a relationship with his people. He pledges himself to his people and then he asks us to respond by living lives that are faithful to that relationship. And so the way that I want to define the word covenant here for us is loving the God who first loves us. Loving the God who first loves us. God doesn't say give thanks or hate what is evil in order that I will love you and call you mine. But it's because God calls us his own. It's because the glory of who he is has entered into our lives. It's because his beauty has captivated us and overthrown our idols that we then respond to him with loving obedience. If you notice, the psalm started by addressing all people, right? Verse 1, the Lord reigns, let the whole earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad, all the nations, all the people are invited to know God as a reality. But it's only those who respond to God's initiation who are addressed with ethical instructions, covenantal instructions at the end of the psalm. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. Rejoice in the Lord, you saints. Give him thanks. So I'll simply finish with this. If you have questions, you can text them now. Psalm 97 is pointing us to the God who is our king. Verse 1 says, the Lord reigns, but really, whenever you see in your Bibles, the Lord printed in all caps, it's the covenant name of God, the, the personal name of God, Yahweh. It says, it's saying Yahweh reigns. And the way that the psalm ends is showing us that God demonstrates his reign and his rule and his kingship in this world in large part through the lives of his people. It's because God reigns over us and as he reigns over us, that he reigns and rules over all the world. It's by calling people to himself and forming us into his body, the church, that God is creating a new humanity whose public life is characterized by justice, which is what hating what God calls evil is all about. And it's as God calls us to be his body, the church, that he's creating a new humanity where we are living with joyful humility out of gratitude for the God who is real. So let's see if there are any questions that have been texted in. I know I've had uh, some tech issues with this over the last few weeks, so I don't see any questions coming in. If you have any questions, I would love to talk with you um, about that after the service, or you're welcome to send a, a, a text uh, even later today to the, uh, the number there, and I will follow up with you during this week. But let me pray for us as we come to the Lord's table.